We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. My name is Robert, uh, Robert P., and I am a recovered alcoholic, and it is uh, good to be a part of this uh, this outreach. And as the, as the preamble says, and I love Alcoholics Anonymous, I've been a member since, uh, well, February 9th of 1986. However, I was sober 71 days, and I relapsed on uh, April 19th of 1986, but I came back to the program very fortunate and very blessed, April 25th of 1986. And that gives me, as of recording today, that gives me 13,598 days where I've decided to not burn the house down, not self-destruct. And and I owe all of that to the Rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, to good sponsorship, incredible mentorship. I owe that to the first 164 pages and a loving God that I found in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And for that, I am forever grateful. One of the reasons, and I and I just want to set this up as I move forward before I share some of my background and my recovery story with you. I refer to myself as a recovered alcoholic because I believe that the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous was designed for that. And uh, matter of fact, it says so in the forward to the first edition, it talks about being 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And to show us, you and me, how we can recover and it's italicized is precisely why they wrote the book. Matter of fact, in the sentence after that, it says, we hope that this is so convincing that no further authentication would be necessary. It even goes on in the forward to the second edition to say there's 150,000 recovered. In the preamble of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says we want to solve our common problem and to help others recover from alcoholism. Throughout the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it talks about we recover from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And I hope you are there. Um, if you're not there, if you're new or relatively new to the program, I hope and pray that you become involved in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because for people like me and maybe even like you, the only hope we have the only salvation, the only recovery we have is found in the first 164 pages. In More About Alcoholism, it says that we thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we could not. Actually, it says it in How It Works. It says, with all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. And we don't beg you, I don't beg you, others don't beg you for our benefit because our obligation is to carry the message. Our obligation is not for you to receive the message. It says if newcomers could see no joy in our existence, they wouldn't want it. So it's something that we have to want. I have to want this. Buddy and Eddie and Will and Jack and the rest of the individuals who are responsible for carrying the message to me back in 1986, that's all their responsibility was. And I hope and pray that if you are alcoholic, like countless men and women are, you find your recovery in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And for that, I extend this opportunity in these words. You know, I'm I'm so grateful to be here and be a part of this movement of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and after 30 years, 37 years of personal recovery, I still call my sponsor. I was in a meeting earlier today 
I'm very much involved in the big book, hospitals, institutions. So, so and, and again, this is for you who are new or relatively new. I still do the same things today as a recovered person that I did when I first came in, that I was instructed when I first came in. I believe that to maintain a position of being recovered, one must stay in recovery. So I still do the steps. I still work with others. I still, once again, do all the things necessary to keep what I have been given. And that's a long cry from from where I came from. Like many people, uh, I was born into an alcoholic family, and not everyone has been. There's many out there who've developed alcoholism or or it was revealed in them, and they were in a a loving, normal, affluent, non-codependent household, and yet somehow, some way, alcoholism found you. But I was brought up in a home where alcoholism was prominent. My dad was an alcoholic. Uh, My mom was like a poster child for codependency. And I was the middle of seven children and we were poor. That didn't mean that I was destined to become alcoholic, but that sure as heck set the groundwork and the stages for me to look for relief. You know, and, and that's where I think so many of us find our common ground. It, it really doesn't matter whether we drank beer or, or scotch or whiskey or vodka. Read more about alcoholism. It talks about the different things we did as our alcoholism developed. It doesn't matter whether we were affluent or poor. It doesn't matter our race, our background, our gender. None of those things matter. Where our common ground is, in my opinion, how we process pain. I believe that that we who succumb to alcoholism do so because we are responding to how we feel about ourselves and our surroundings. In the doctor's opinion, it says that men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. It wasn't the alcohol itself. It was the effect produced by the alcohol. And for me, it was taking a person who came from nothing, was a nothing, and in my mind was always going to be a nothing. I tell people that alcohol made me an almost. And you know, when you come from nothing and you are nothing and you're always going to be a nothing, being an almost is so powerful. You never win the game. You find a a position of neutrality because from my earliest age, and I learned this in recovery, I was going through and trying to re-engineer, trying to backtrack and where all this crap came from. I remember having an introduction to to a, a godlike figure because my dad would say, God bless you, and God is your life in between drinks. He would send us to church and try to get some upbringing, some exposure to God. But I remember laying in bed at night and crying and trying to conjure up this loving, this caring God. And I was so confused because if God is love, why did it hurt so much being me? Why was there such pain? Why was there such turmoil? Why was there so much confusion? And I suffered as a child, not because my dad was physical, although I was afraid of my dad, but because I was lost 
And, you know, you try different things. You, you try to become this people pleaser. You try to become this, this very um, uh, chameleon type person where you're funny, you're sad, you're all these different things. Everything is outside. Everything that I was inside was to make the outside a little bit more comfortable. But, you know, we can only do that for so long. And I, and I really think it's been my experience anyway that, that most individuals who begin their addiction journey do so somewhere between 14 and 16 years old. And, and I find this very consistent in the rooms. And, and that's, of course, an average. Some younger and some a little bit older. Some don't uh, come into their alcoholism until they're in their 20s and maybe even 30s. But I think for the most part, it's it's 14 to 16 years old because there's a sense of accountability, I think, that comes as a result of puberty. And, and here we now have a responsibility to give back as we were given to. And I had a sponsor, Max B, who talked to me about a love disorder. And it was, to this day, it's an outstanding concept. We are given things that we never learn how to receive. And then we're expected to give back as if we process these things. And that would set up such a turmoil in me that drinking was something that I did to be rebellious, to get away with something, to drink when I was 14. Every subsequent drink I had up until addiction took place, where where I became chronic, I had to drink like I would have to breathe. It was because how alcohol made me feel. It put me in that position of being an almost. And once again, when you come from nothing and you are nothing and you're always going to be a nothing, being an almost is absolutely everything. And as I began to explore this avenue of being an almost, the addiction began to set in. And I was very active in school. I was very athletic. I'm still reasonably athletic for an older person, but I was very athletic in school, played two major sports. I was very involved in drama. I was most improved student in the field of fine arts for vocals my junior year in high school. I was trying to fit in, but at the same time before school started, I was behind the handball courts getting high, getting ready for the day because I could not be found out as the inadequate person that I believed I was. I was still a nothing, but if I drank just enough and smoked just enough dope, whatever that day brought me, I could find a balance that I could sort of fool you into thinking I was somebody while all along believing I was a no one. And this went on and on and on. One of the turning points in my addiction was the day that my father announced that we were moving from Southern California up to Oregon. And here my life was already upside down. And this was between my junior and my senior year in high school. And I developed all these relationships. And obviously, I'd gone to junior high and high school up to my junior year with, with these individuals. And now my alcoholic dad was making the announcement that he was moving our family 1,200 miles to a place I'd never been that I didn't want to go to. And it was the first time I became outwardly angry. And that's not a good combination for a person with a drinking problem who thinks there are nothing. Anger is not a good attribute to add into that mix. As if I needed another reason to drink. I was already drinking because 
I was a nothing and I thought I could be an almost if I drank enough. Now you add anger to that equation, outward anger. So we moved in uh, August of 1971. And I enrolled in Corvallis High School and I did not want to be there. I didn't make the basketball team. I, I failed that choir. They laughed at me when I tried to sing a solo to, to uh, join. And again, I was exceptional in these areas. And I did not want to be there. And it was the first time I had the attitude where I'll show you, I'll kill me. Maybe you've heard that in the rooms before. So I, I go to school, and on January 3rd, of 1972, I turned 18 years old. And with my driver's license, I walked into the register's office and I said, I'm dropping out of high school. And they looked at me and said, you can't do that. And I showed them my license and I said, I can do anything I want. I'm 18 years old. And the anger became part of who I was. And you don't want to appear that angry, so you drink more to calm that anger and that depression and that fear and that resentment. And I thought, you know what I'll do? I think because we justify, right? We rationalize, we minimize, and we deny our condition because we're never going to admit to it. (laughs) To admit to something is to take responsibility. And I wasn't responsible for anything, especially change. So I thought, what will I do? I think I'll go into the Air Force. That's the honorable thing to do. So I enrolled into the Air Force. I dropped out of high school so I could drink full time, although I didn't know it at the time. And let me do this. Let me enroll in the Air Force. So they sent me down to Lackland. Air Force Base for basic training in Lackland, Texas. And I didn't even get out of basic training. I was a wreck. I was 18 years old. I was lost. And the addiction to alcohol was beginning to set in. Fortunately, I had a psychiatrist who was kind and compassionate and they allowed me to get out of the Air Force with a general discharge with the caption, inability to adjust to military life. You didn't have to put military in there. You could have just said inability to adjust to life. And it's said in the rooms and is so crystallized. We never wanted to die. We just didn't know how to live. And boy, That said it on those discharge papers. Inability to adjust to military life. I couldn't adjust to any life. And I drank and more and more and more. So they sent me home. This was in the summer, still 1972. In June, they sent me home with that discharge paper and an open-ended prescription to Valium. That's what every alcoholic needs, right? An open-ended prescription to Valium. And the train ride started to go faster and faster and faster. And it was my first real introduction to hard drugs. I had done a little bit here and there, but never any really hardcore drugs like Valium can be. And, you know, I needed that because... You could only drink so much and then you would pass out or get in trouble. And I didn't like to do either. And so I began to learn combinations of substances, something that would add to my alcohol consumption that would sort of enhance it, make it larger than it really was so I could enjoy being drunk and the enjoyment and the separation that that brought me. So high school didn't work. The Air Force didn't work. But I had met a girl in Oregon. I thought, that's what I'll do. 
I'll go back up to Oregon, the place I hated, to go with this girl because that was going to fix me. That, man, I'd get me a girl, right? And I know in country music, you get a girl, get a dog, get a truck, right? I wanted to get the girl. So I went back up to Oregon and I started dating, redating this girl. And I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll get married. That's that that's gonna fix me. That's gonna work. And so in May of 1973, I get married. And that was doomed from the beginning. And it was unfortunate because she was a wonderful girl. She she knew the side of me that had yet to be addicted. And she saw something in me that I wasn't willing to admit about myself because she saw somebody when all along I thought I was a nothing and I still needed to mask that nothingness with alcohol and now drugs. That marriage lasted almost eight years, but it was never what it could be because alcohol got in my way at every single step of my life. Now, I'm not a war story guy. I don't have really any funny stories because I don't think there's anything amusing about my alcoholism. I don't think there's anything amusing. Now, I've heard speakers who are hilarious. They're super funny. I'm not one of them. My story is tragedy. My story is that of loss upon loss upon loss upon loss. In the big book, it says we were just once as hopeless as Bill. Bill Wilson, of course, co-founder of AA. I was that hopeless drunk. I was so hopeless and so lonely that I became an adulterer in a marriage to a wonderful girl. I thought, you know, this, I, I know how to fix this. Let's have some kids. Let's throw some kids into the mix. So we had two daughters. That didn't work. All along, my alcoholism and drug addiction now was becoming very deep. And I probably didn't know a moment where I wasn't under the influence or on my way to being under the influence of alcohol and, and things says over any considerable period, things get worse, never better. And that's the way it was for me. And my alcohol would progress and progress. And our marriage wasn't doing good at all, as you can imagine. And so then I thought, I know what will work. Let's move. My, my mom and dad had moved to Las Vegas. <laughs> Las Vegas, the town that never sleeps, 24-hour-a-day alcohol. Of course, I would have never said that out loud because I might have admitted I had a problem. And again, you don't own the problem. Because then you're obligated to fix the problem. What, what do you do when the problem's you? And you know it's you. My problem wasn't alcohol. My problem wasn't drugs. It was, it was me. You know, Father Martin says something incredible in Chalk Talk. He says, it's a natural human response to seek relief from that which is uncomfortable. He gives the example, like if it's cold out, you put on a jacket. If it's raining, you use an umbrella. Uh, if you have a headache, you take an aspirin. But what do you do if the problem is you? What do you do if you are what is uncomfortable? And again, I didn't want to die. I just didn't know how to live. So I thought living somewhere else would be the ticket. So in May of 1980, we moved to Las Vegas. And Las Vegas was a, a town that gave to me something that maybe California couldn't have. Las Vegas gave to me 24-hour ac access to alcohol in difference to California. It gave me bars to go to. 
it accelerated my timeline of alcoholism to where I just didn't have a fender bender. I had a full head-on collision. Because by this time, everything I had done in my life, I was now doing alcoholically. Everything I would do to excess. And alcohol was the cornerstone of that excess. So obviously, the marriage was kind of on the rocks. Well, it wasn't kind of. It was on the rocks. I had this loving wife who cared for me, these two daughters who adored me. And my addiction was getting worse and worse and worse. Not only was I consuming a lot, but now I was consuming as many hours that were available to me. And so my mom and dad, we were living with my mom and dad, and they asked me to leave. Because they said, if you're not going to be here, just don't be here. And when I left, of course, it was their fault. They didn't understand me. I became a victim of my own victimization. It was others that was harming me. Everyone was wrong except me. Everyone could see the problem I was having. And yet I thought the problem I was having was them. And my alcoholism became worse and worse and worse. By this time, Sue and I were divorced. I know what I'll do. I'll meet someone else and get married again. As if that was going to fix me. I started losing job after job after job. My alcoholism became worse and worse and worse. I had a gambling problem by this time. Living in Las Vegas, you drink long enough and hard enough, you develop other issues as well. So not only was I alcoholic, but I developed the drug dependency. Strip clubs are a, a, a dime a dozen in Las Vegas. So now I'm engaging in pornography, going to strip joints. I'm bulimic by this time. I'm throwing up three times a day. And I'm a compulsive gambler. So at the end of my second marriage, I went to Gamblers Anonymous. This was in December of 1985. I went to Gamblers Anonymous and thought, you know, because one of the rules of alcoholism, alcoholics, is protect the supply. So you could touch everything else in my life, but don't touch King Alcohol because I need that to survive. All the other things that I was doing and engaged in and behavior and substances were as a result of my alcoholism. So I went to Gamblers Anonymous. And I thought, well, if I could just stop gambling, you know, stop going in these casinos, stop going in the bars with the tabletop quarter video poker machines and all the other things and Davy's Locker and all the other bars I went to, maybe I could get my life under control. So I go to Gamblers Anonymous and I became a closet drinker. I would stay out of the casinos but I would find myself drinking more at home. And the alcoholism grew and grew and grew and grew. Finally, I had lost another job. I was a room service waiter to Las Vegas Hilton. And I got my check for $1,000. They fired me. And I went and drank that $1,000 and gambled at a place called Baby's Locker over on a desert DI. Uh, Desert Inn Boulevard, right off of uh, Maryland Parkway in Las Vegas. And I went over to crash on my mom and dad's because I had lost my car by this time. I sold my car for $100. <laughs> yeah, that was rather intelligent. And I walked over to my mom and dad's and I crashed there. And that was February 8th of 1986. And the next morning I would wake up on February 9th. And I looked in the mirror. My mom and dad were both gone to work. I don't even know if they knew I was there. I looked in the mirror and, you, you know, you, you hear voices and the voices of people who would look at you and say, what are you doing? How come you, you know, those voices where 
of the displeasure, the the bewilderment, the confusion, the frustration, the questioning that people would do. And I remember I, I would call them, they would sing like the tabernacle choir. And they would all be looking at me. And in almost unison, they would say, Bobby, 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 what are you doing? And I remember this morning, this particular morning on February 9th of 1986, I looked in the mirror and there was nobody there. There was no voices. There was no images. There was just me and my reflection. And for the first time in my life, I saw me as dead. Do you ever see yourself dead while you're still alive? And I was so afraid that I was going to die that I looked in the yellow pages under alcoholism. And for the first time in my life, I admitted I had a problem. I had another problem. I had no money. I had no insurance. I had no job. So I started calling all the treatment centers under alcoholism. After five or six calls of hearing no, 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 no. I called and spoke to a person at the Nevada Treatment Center over on Martin Luther King Boulevard in Las Vegas. And I told them, I'm in trouble. I need your help. I don't know what to do. I have no, I have nowhere to turn. I have nowhere to go. And I think I'm going to die. And they said, well, if you can get here in one hour with $50, we'll talk to you. I, I can do that. I can, I can do that. Mind you, I didn't have a car. I didn't have any money. So I called my dad. My dad was seven years sober at this time. And I called my dad and I said, hey, dad, I need your help. They told me if I could get there in an hour with $50, they, they would talk to me, Dad. I need, I need to go into treatment. I need help, Dad. And my dad got over there so quick. And I went into detox that day, and that began my journey of recovery. And we would go to Alcoholics Anonymous, and we would have these meetings. And the town that... I used to drink around the clock. Now I use to go to meetings around the clock. But you know, honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness are part of the triangle of recovery. And I, and I heard you in the rooms. I heard you say, keep coming back. I heard you share your stories but I couldn't be honest because for the first time in my life, I felt like you understood me and I understood you. There was a, there was a commonality between us. Bill would say on page 17, that was indescribably wonderful. And you fed in me, you, you fed me fellowship that I needed so badly. I'd never felt a part of anything. Not, and, and it's not to say that people didn't want me to feel a part of it. Again, my wife was wonderful. Both wives were wonderful. I had family who loved me. And yet I never felt a part of that love. But I did in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I couldn't be honest. But not the way you need to be honest. It says, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. I wasn't fearless. I was fearful. And I wasn't thorough. I was conveniently partial. <laughs> because I could only tell you the truth up to a degree. Because I was convinced that if you knew who I was, what I did, where I came from, all the ins and outs, all the dirty little secrets about me as an adulterer, about the guy who walked out on his children and the other despicable things I did and the places I went. I believed, 
I really believe this, that I would be the first person in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous that you would ask not to come back. I knew it. I knew it was too good to be true. And it says, half measures availed us nothing. Half measures availed me 71 days, but I couldn't take it after that. And at 71 days, I relapsed. That was April 19th of 1986. I tried to recapture that feeling of being an almost, because I was, I was close with AA. But I was still coming from nothing. I was a nothing. And no matter how much you loved me, I was always going to be a nothing. So I relapsed. And I tried to go back to my mom and dad's because I had no place to live. My second wife had kicked me out again. And my dad took me to the Rhett Butler Motel on 15th and Fremont in Las Vegas. He said to me, your mother and I aren't going to watch you die. My dad said that. Your mother and I aren't going to watch you die. And he paid a week's worth at the motel. And he turned around and he walked away. It was the hardest thing my dad ever did, he told me. To walk away from a living son that he thought was going to die. He thought it was the last time he would see me alive. And I tried. I tried to recapture that feeling of being an almost, but I couldn't. I remembered so many of the things that you told me in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I tried and I tried and I tried in that hotel room. And I went to the Sundowner Saloon, catty corner from my hotel, and tried to drink all the scotch they had just to recapture. And I came up empty. And again, I don't, I don't want to take my own life. I just don't know how to live my own life. And I decided then and there that maybe AA was where I needed to be. And on the morning of April 25th of 1986, I packed up my bag and I walked back into the rooms at the turning point in Las Vegas, Nevada. And talk about divine appointments because my, my sponsor at the time, Max B, was hanging around later than he would be at a meeting he never went to. And I didn't expect to see him. I got in as quickly as I could, went in the back door of this, in the front of this Alano Club, of course, was the club and the coffee bar and the pinball machines and the pool and everything like that, where all the people would hung up. And I went in the back door to the meeting room because I just wanted to sit. And Max was there. And he didn't ask me where I was because he knew. He didn't ask me what I was doing because he knew that also. He just said, are you ready? And I said, Max, I, I need this program so badly. And he said, is this something that you want? And I said, Max, I, I need this. And I, and I went on the, the word need. And he said, you don't understand, Bob. Alcoholics Anonymous is not a program for people who need it. Alcoholics Anonymous is a program for people who want it. And again, he recited to me, if you want what we have, not if you need what we have, we know you need us. But the fact that you need us doesn't mean you're going to do it. You have to want my sobriety. You have to want my life. You have to want the way I have decided to live. If you want what we have, happy, joyous, and free, if you want that and you're willing to go to any lengths to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. I said, Max, I want it. What do I do? And we got down on our knees. And we recited the third step prayer. And that was my journey began. Again, I was very fortunate. Most people who relapse never return. But I was a fortunate person on April 25th, 1986. It was the last time, once again, I would find it necessary to drink or to do any mind-altering chemicals. 
and my life began to change. And it didn't change overnight. Things take time. And time is my best friend. So Max was a great friend, a wonderful sponsor. And then Max would be moving. And I found another sponsor, Jack. Jack passed away four years ago of cancer. Jack was my sponsor for 33 years. Lived in Las Vegas. He was very involved. I think one of the reasons I've been sober as long as I've been sober is because I have taken the steps. It says, here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. And I began taking the steps under the guidance of my sponsor, Jack, and reading the first 164 pages. And again, if you're new or relatively new, please do this sooner rather than later. Because for for me, and I'm and I'm not saying that there aren't other paths that other people take. They they do that and God bless them. I think it's wonderful. It's kind of like a higher power. I don't care who your higher power is. I just care what your higher power does. Whether you call him God or Yahweh or uh, Oak Tree, it, it doesn't matter. Whether your God is is a sunset or the tide or the fellowship, it doesn't matter. It can't be a doorknob over or a coffee shop, but that's another conversation. Or a coffee cup, brother. But the 12 steps are the key that unlock the door. Because the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12 steps of recovery, are what guide me to this new way of living. It says, again, that demands rigorous honesty. In the doctor's opinion, it says men and women drink essentially, like I said, because they like the effect produced by alcohol. But it says the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he was resolved of ever solving them, now finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol. The only requirement necessary is to follow a few simple rules. I wanted to know what the rules were because I knew that if I went back out, I would never come back. If, if I did not view my alcoholism, my active alcoholism as death, then I was doomed to die says in the big book that we have to concede to our innermost self that we were alcoholic. This is the first step in recovery. I had to admit I was powerless over alcohol, that my life had become unmanageable. The first step, I must admit that. I must say that I'm powerless. If I don't do that, there is no conceivable, logical, ethical, moral, emotional, spiritual reason why I would do the rest of the steps. Only out of desperation, understanding how unmanageable my life is. I heard a guy say one time, not every time I drank that I get in trouble, but every time I got in trouble, I was drunk. That was me. That was me. Relationships, DUI, you name it. Every time life was upside down, is because I was drinking. And when we look at the steps, when I look at the steps, as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, I must do them to the best of my ability. I am what is called the big book thumper, and I make no apologies. And I am adamant that the first 164 pages work as they're designed to work. My sponsor today has 43 years sobriety, and I've known this person, Slow Will, since my onset of, I, I actually knew him longer than I knew Jack. And I remember meeting Will, and I remember one of the first times I ever heard him share 
He said, my name is Slow Will. I'm a happy, grateful, recovered alcoholic. And I thought, who the heck is this guy? That is just arrogance beyond my understanding. And I went up to him afterwards. I said, "How? who are you to say that you're happy, you're grateful, you're recovered? And Will said to me, well, if you got a minute, it's in the first 164 pages I would be happy to show you. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. And this was really put to the test. I want to share this story with you because it involves my dad. So my dad and I were estranged because of his alcoholism and then my subsequent alcoholism. My dad would get uh, sober in, uh, I guess it was 1979. And we were becoming friends in my sobriety. And I was working in Southern California. My mom and dad were still living in Las Vegas. And on August 1st of 1988, I had a week's vacation, so I got all my work done, single at the time, and I went to visit my dad in his condo in Las Vegas over on Cheyenne Boulevard off the off the freeway. I went and knocked on his door. No one was there. My mom wasn't there, my, but my dad's car was, and it was really strange that his car would be there and he wouldn't, neither would my mom. So as I'm standing there knocking on the door, someone came around the corner and said, I don't know what's going on but someone was taken away to the hospital. So I thought, okay, obviously a little concerned, but a little confused as well. And my sister-in-law, Annie, my brother and her had a condo around the corner and she came around and said, Bobby, dad had a heart attack and it doesn't look good. So I went over to North Las Vegas hospital and my dad had died. My dad died when he was taking a nap, waiting for me to show up. And instead of spending the week with my dad, I buried my dad. And part of me was angry. The rest of me was very confused. But I knew that God would express himself in my most deep sorrow. And I challenged God and I said, God, if you get me through this week, of burying my dad, I will know there is never a reason for me to drink and to use again. And God lived up to his end of the bargain. He got me through this week of sorrow. And it was an indication that God was doing for me what I could not do for myself because I would have gotten drunk that's who I was. But God could and would if he were sought. And once again, if you're new or relatively new to the program of recovery, if you've been around for a minute, you already know these things. I'm just confirming what you believe and how you walk. But if you're new or relatively new, I hope you join us. I hope your suffering has seen its end. And it's not to say that recovery is, is always happy, joyous, and free, because sometimes it's filled with sorrow. Sometimes it's filled with confusion and frustration. But I have a way out today, and it's the 12 steps. And every day, I do steps 10, 11, and 12. Step 10 reminds me of my humanity as I continue to take a personal inventory. And it tells me that I need a power greater than myself because I can't do what needs to be done. So step 11, I seek God. And step 12, I find my purpose as I go help another person, having had that spiritual awakening, as I'm practicing the principles of recovery in all my affairs. In 37 years, there's more stories but in the time we have today, I hope this has helped you 
along your journey. And it's been an honor to share with you part of my story today. My name is Robert, and I am a recovered alcoholic. Hmm, very powerful storytelling. I really love your love for the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you. You spoke about the book saying, follow a few simple rules. What are those rules that the big book refers to? Well, it doesn't say, because that was written by Dr. Silkworth, a psychiatrist and a good friend of Bill W., great friend of the program. You know what I think they are? I think they're clean house, trust God, and work with others. I think cleaning house is what we do in steps one through nine. I think trusting God is what we do in steps 10 and 11. And I think what we do is uh, working with others is in step 12. I think everything revolves around the 12 steps. So I think those those rules are clean house, trust God, and work with others. Because without cleaning my house, I, I have nothing to present. I, I want newcomers to see my life. I tell people all the time, I'm overpaid in every area of life. If you could see my life and see where I was and see where I am, I hope you would want to be on this journey. So I think those are the rules. That's a really good answer. It was almost like we planned it ahead of time. You answered it so well. Thank you. We did not, obviously. (laughs) I don't even know what my questions are going to be until we get here. Sometimes when I say my question, you're hearing it for the first time, then I'm hearing it. It just comes out. Okay, so back to your share. You said that you still do everything that you did 37 years ago, H&I, hospitals and institutions, service work, big book sponsor. For the newcomer, I imagine it looks excessive. Do you feel like doing all that stuff keeps you sober or does it still continue to help you grow? And if so, how? I think it does both. That's a great question, by the way. I, I think it does both. It, it, is an outlet and serving others is very biblical. It's no matter what, no matter what your spiritual background is, I think giving back is my response to God giving to me. It's, it's kind of like you can't fill. And this is scientific. You can't fill a cup that isn't empty because there's no room for it. If there's no inflow and outflow, the water gets stagnant and it's undrinkable. So you must have a release for the water. You must require and desire more water, but you need to have an outlet for that water. And I think the the program of Alcoholics Anonymous allows for that flow to occur. But for that to occur, I must give it away. It's, it says that you, but obviously you can't transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. Even as we look at the big book and it says what we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Right after that, it says, find out what God's vision for you is and go do it. I believe we're given a, a, a mandate by God to go and serve other people. And that's how I believe we keep what we have. And, 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 and I'll tell you, I didn't do all of this in the beginning. You know, it's, it's like a child. I don't expect my grandchildren to run and play hockey like my 15-year-old grandson does. Some of my grandchildren are are eight and nine months they're still learning how to crawl but they crawl really good right Hmm. and i think it's progression i think that's where good leadership and good sponsorship an example 
there was there was a time where I was so afraid. You know, when when you when you meet your own mortality face to face, and there was a time in my recovery where I realized how sick I really was, how unmanageable my life actually was. And I went to my sponsor, Jack, and I said, Jack, there has to be, I was probably six months older at the time. I said, Jack, there has to be some magic answer because if I go back out, Jack, I'm dead. You have to tell me what I have to do to help ensure that I will never go back out again. And he said, Bob, it's service. And at six months sober, I began to introduce service that was that was commensurate upon my ability to serve. Now, hospitals, institutions, I speak on a regular basis. I do big book studies and treatment centers. I do as much as I possibly can in the time that 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 I'm given. And one of the things that I do in because I'm 69 years old, I'm 37 years sober. I I find it now necessary to to help raise up that next generation of individuals who will carry the message when I'm gone. That's become very important to me. That's so sweet. I'm so grateful for old timers like you that come still and do this thing and show us that it works and it does continue to get better and better. There's no glass ceiling of serenity and peace in one's life. That's true. And you know, that was the example I was given. I mean, I, I hung around men and women who believed they recovered. And that's my message. There's hope. If we wanted mediocrity, we'd have stayed drinking because we were mediocre. I was fortunate to be introduced to people who said, not only can you recover, but you can become well. I had a friend of mine who said, you can become weller than the well. Mm -hmm. He said, I know not good grammar, but by golly, never stop. And so I always, I still read my big book like I'm a newcomer. I still listen to speakers on YouTube three or four times a week. I, I as as you know, I have a have a podcast. I I do whatever I can. It says do what you know, do what you can for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. So I can't do for others if I don't do my own house. I love your passion. And since you just mentioned your podcast, do you want to tell us what it is or do you want to remain anonymous from that? Oh, no, no. It, it, you know, I would never do anything that would conflict with your mission. My mission is to help as many people and as we can. Well, my, uh, my podcast is Recovery Guy Podcast, and you can find that on most major podcast channels. Uh, on YouTube, I am Real Recovery Guy, and I have a website. It is recoveryguy.org. Okay. Now that we got that out there, I'm glad that you mentioned it. I wasn't sure if you wanted to. In terms of a comment you made, I have, well, well, let me say, I'm really impressed your memory of dates. Is that just something you've always been good at? You're very specific on dates throughout your whole story. You know, certain things. I also remember when I was born. Certain dates are so crucial i i was gonna die i was i I, when i say i looked in the mirror and i saw me as dead you can't you can't forget those moments Mm. they were life-saving and life-changing and they'll forever be etched in my heart because they were turning points for me in my life I love your vulnerability. Vulnerability, it's it's touching. Thank you. Okay, couple more questions. This one may sound weird that I'm going to this next after you just got emotional, but I'm very curious. You talked about it, then I'll have my two final questions. So accountability as a result of puberty, giving back as we were given to. Can you elaborate what you mean by 
connecting this notion of accountability and puberty? Well, I think puberty, once we go through puberty, it's it's our access, it's our it's our young adulthood. It separates us from being a child to being a young adult. And there's a degree of accountability that's expected of us. And part of that expectation, I believe, is to give back that which you were given. And that's where I think the dynamic of the love disorder begins. After puberty, there's, a, there's an expectation because there's a physiological change that separates us from being a child. Now we are a young adult. So, yeah, that makes sense. And then also I need to look up love disorder and out of, out of my own interest to, to learn more about that. The, the preamble of Alcoholics Anonymous is Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength and hope with each other that they might solve their common problem and to help others to recover from alcoholism. I really believe if that's the only thing I've ever heard in AA, I'd have stayed. Hmm. Because I wouldn't find out till later, till I tried to do some controlled drinking, to the depth and degree that, that my alcoholism was. But I know how lonely I was. On page 17, yeah. there is a solution. It says, we are like the passengers of a great liner when moment after rescue from shipwreck, when camaraderie, joyousness, and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table. Unlike the feeling of the ship's passengers, however, our joy in escape from disaster does not subside as we go our own individual ways. The feeling of having shared in a common peril is one element in the powerful cement which now binds us, but that in itself would have not held us together as we are now joined. The tremendous fact is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and join in brotherly and harmonious action. And it's words like that. It's 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 the unity. It's it's we were dying apart, but we learned to live together. And and it's why the first tradition exists. Our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon AA unity. Everything goes from me to we. What you couldn't do, what I couldn't do, we can. We were dying apart, but learned to live together. Yeah. It's a miracle. It is a miracle. Is there anything that you left out or that you're thinking of now that you'd like to share? You know, yeah, yeah. There's a great story of. My first introduction to One Day at a Time, and I actually wrote this down to tell this, so thank you for bringing that up. As a, as a person who has relapsed, I understand the pain and discomfort and embarrassment of coming back to the rooms. And, and I'm trudging along, and my friend Scott, Melissa, his girlfriend, and I, along with this guy named Texas Mike, Texas Mike probably had 18 years at the time. And I was 71 days sober, and we were are, we are at a Denny's in Las Vegas. As we were sitting there, I was telling them about my relapse and about my drug, my journey back and working and struggling and hoping I would make it. And uh, and Mike looked at me with this seer, with this, he already knew the answer. And I don't know how he knew, but he knew, you know, when God just speaks to people, God speaks to people and he tells them things that they wouldn't know otherwise. So Mike looks at me and said, how many days were you when you relapsed? And I said, 71. And he said, how many days are you sober today? And I said, 72. And he said, see, I knew you could do it. Isn't that beautiful? It is it is beautiful and I imagine you have hundreds and hundreds of beautiful stories like that throughout the last 37 years. I do. I'm I I cannot tell you how fortunate I am. Every day I wake up and I and I realize what I've been given. And I wouldn't I wouldn't trade this for anything. I don't stay sober because I'm afraid of alcohol. 
I stay sober because I never want to stop living this life. It's remarkable. It's amazing. It's more than I ever expected. When I used to lay in bed at night and wonder why it hurt being me, I lay in bed at night and wonder, why does it feel so good? I, I just, I, there are no words that could ever express the depth of my gratitude for what I've been given. I know how fortunate I am. I remember I used to preach. I was an evangelist for a number of years in Los Angeles. I would go to Skid Row Missions as part of my recovery. And I remember at the Emmanuel Baptist Rescue Mission on Fifth and Crocker in L.A., and I was standing at the pulpit, and I looked out and I saw all these people, as I do in AA meetings, but especially this room. Everyone was a Skid Row wino. And here I was, a sober person. But there was no difference between them and me. And I couldn't understand it. Why am I there and not where they're at? I don't, I don't understand God's mercy any more than I understand his grace. All I know is I'm part of it and I wouldn't change it for anything. Well, I typically say this to newcomers, keep doing what you're doing, but I'm going to say it to you, keep doing what you're doing, because we need you old timers to show us how it's done. Yeah. Thank you. I hope to make a difference. I have one final question for the alcoholic listening newcomer or not yet sober. What message, final message would you like to leave with them? Come back. Just just come back, no matter what, no matter if you're happy, sad, fulfilled, waiting, just come back. There's two parts of the program. There's a fellowship and there's the recovery. In the beginning, I, I was just there for the fellowship because the recovery took too much honesty. But I stuck around long enough in the fellowship that the recovery became something that I wanted. So come back. We need you. You need us. Thank you, Robert. It was my pleasure. For more information, read the first 164 pages of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.